0: This morning we'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 18, please give attention to the reading of God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, "'but because of him who subjected it in hope, "'that the creation itself will be set free "'from its bondage to corruption "'and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. "'For we know that the whole creation "'has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, "'and not only the creation, "'but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, "'grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, "'the redemption of our bodies. "'For in this hope we are saved,' our Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Open your Bibles,
1: if you will, to Revelation chapter 11. We will continue our study this morning uh, by way of reading through the chapter and then looking uh, at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ given to John by way of the Lord's angel to be communicated to the body of Christ. Here then the word of God reads, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple, the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes them like like their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have furnished, or finished rather, their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street on the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we enter into this time of worship the teaching of your word and are always dependent upon the leading of your Holy Spirit to grant not only me the ability to communicate this truth to your people, but for your people to have ears to hear and a heart that is receptive to this glorious truth. We pray now for your guidance. We pray for your direction. We are ever needy people. We pray for your blessing upon us that your name may be blessed and honored in this time, we pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Living as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ is very costly. Now that is neither an unexpected or surprising statement for any Christian, or at least it certainly shouldn't be. Because he himself was crucified by those he created. And during his public earthly ministry, Jesus himself was called the devil. But nevertheless, he calls us to follow him. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. And he goes on to say, and it's probably not going to go much better for you than it did for me. He goes on to say, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In the time of Jesus, Beelzebul was the name for the prince of the demons, which is none other than Satan himself. Now, Jesus goes on in his teachings not only to speak about the nature of suffering that those of his throughout time, we will experience, but also how we're to respond to the suffering that we bear because of his name, the price of being a Christian. He doesn't avoid or dismiss suffering in our lives whatsoever. He doesn't sidestep the issue. He never provides another avenue of how to live for him in order to bypass suffering. He doesn't give us information on how to stop slander against us for his namesake. He never conceals the costliness of following him, but he does teach us how to respond to it. You remember what he said to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2? He said this, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto what? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So there then is the nature of the suffering, and there's the instruction of how to respond to it. Be faithful unto death. If you remember the seven letters to the seven churches in the earlier chapters of Revelation, um, those Christians who refused to participate in serving the local deities of their day while they served the one true God were excommunicated from the local labor unions because false deities were associated with the labor unions of the day and if you didn't worship them, you were cast out and therefore not able to buy or sell in the marketplace unable to provide for your family. And some of them, although not all of them, were thrown into prison, and some of them, although not all of them, were killed because of their unashamed faith. Being a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ meant severe loss. Most of us aren't going to face this. We'll face other kinds of loss, But for many around the world, it means the same thing, severe loss. The life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, I was reading him again this week, echoes to this very day. That man's life echoes from 1945. He had been a pastor, he was a teacher, he was a leader of a discipleship school for confessing Christians, and he was part of the Protestant resistant movement against the Nazis during World War II. In his renowned book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote these words, quote, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and unhappy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, end quote. Bonhoeffer's book, beloved, was an indictment against the cheap grace gospel that he saw in the Christian community on both sides of the Atlantic. He believed in sola gratia. He believed in sola fide, salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. There's no doubt he heralded that truth, but he did not believe that faith that justifies a sinner could ever leave people unchanged by the radical Christ they claim to follow impossible, so he believed. And if so, he believed it to be a simple, cheap grace response to the glorious eternal truth and the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer lived out the peace of Christ as he carried the cross of Christ. He understood what it meant to have peace with God through Jesus Christ, his son, as he bore the cross of our savior and he was hanged in a concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany, April 9th, 1945. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In John chapter 16, he said, I have said these things to you, the glorious gift of the gospel, that in me you may have peace. You're in Christ, you have peace. You have peace with God, you have the peace of God, but in the world, he said, you will have tribulation. So in Christ, beloved, we have peace and tribulation. In Christ, we have eternal protection and temporal trouble. Now that seeming paradox is the crux of this chapter. The theme of chapter 11 of the Revelation is God's protection, eternal protection for his redeemed people in the midst of suffering. Now, This was the case in the interlude of chapter 7. Remember, now we're in an interlude right now between the 6th and 7th trumpet blast, and there's a break in the action to give us a picture of God's people, their eternal security, but their temporal suffering. There was a break in the action back in chapter 7. John heard the sound of a number that was 144,000 sealed Israelites, standing in ranks, so to speak. Now, when he looked, He saw something different when he looked. After hearing 144,000 sealed Israelites, he looked and saw assembled before God a group of people that was innumerable from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Conflicts passed because they were standing in heaven. Now, throughout chapter 11, we read of language that speaks of both safety, preservation along with satanic persecution and attack on God's people. That's what it's about. So we see that there's trials and tribulations that come from those who dwell on the earth, and that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, means unbelievers, those who are enemies of Christ, those who hate the gospel, those who reject the gospel, they hate the gospel, they reject the gospel, they hate Christ's people, the recipients of the gospel, because they hate him. Okay, which shows us that although God's people are definitely, ultimately protected, they are sealed, you are blood-bought, therefore your end is heaven. That's the guarantee for you. But nevertheless, as you dwell here, you are not immune to attack. We will suffer in general while we live in this age as recipients of grace. Grace as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the protection that we experience as God's redeemed people provides that bittersweet kind of tension that John talked about in the last chapter. The gospel's bittersweet. Bittersweet. Eternal protection mixed with temporal, earthly persecution. Now, those, those are the things that are taking shape here in the 11th chapter of the Revelation. Now, some have considered chapter 11 of the book of Revelation to be the most difficult book or chapter to interpret in the Revelation itself. But I don't think that to be the case if we keep one simple principle in mind as we read the Revelation. One of the principles of rightly interpreting the book of Revelation, beloved, is to understand that genre of literature for which it was written, and that is what? apocalyptic, thank you. It is apocalyptic literature, and therefore it is meant to be interpreted symbolically wherever possible. And John gives us this instruction in chapter one, verse one, when he said this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. This phrase, he made it known, means to express by way of signs. And that verb, the meaning of that verb is to say he made it known through symbols. Through symbols. So we must respect, beloved, and we must align ourselves with the literary style for which John communicates this glorious book of hope. This is a book of hope. A book of encouragement for all who are in Christ We must also remember this, to to interpret the majority of the book of Revelation symbolically in no way takes away or denies its historicity. This is an historic book written to an historic people. The book of Revelation was written to the church, the seven churches of Asia Minor, written for us who would exist from that point until the coming of Christ. We got that down? Now this morning we want to focus on three things. Three points of interest for us this morning. Number one, what is this temple that's being described? Number two, what do the 42 months represent? And number three, who are these two witnesses? Okay? So let's set our minds now on course as to determine, according to Scripture, what is this temple that he's commanded to measure? Notice verse one. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, as you know, up until chapter 10, John was simply a recipient of this vision. When, he enters into, when we enter into chapter 10, we see that John is now a participant in the vision, He's told to take this scroll from the hand of the angel. He's told to take the scroll and then to eat the scroll. Here now he's instructed to take this rod-like staff and measure this temple. Now, as you read the Old Testament, you know oftentimes that prophets are called upon when they're given a vision to participate in the vision itself, to live out with sometimes really bizarre behavior in front of God's people to communicate that which God is about to do. In Ezekiel, we're instructed that he's told to dig a a hole through the wall, pull his belongings through the wall, and that was to symbolize exile and Babylonian captivity. Isaiah was instructed to walk around naked and barefoot depicting Egypt's impending judgment as they would be taken captive by Assyria that they'd be stripped and humiliated and taken captive. Bizarre behavior. Instruction given by God himself. In Acts 21, the uh, prophet Agabus takes the apostle Paul's belt, he binds his hands and feet, and he prophesies and he said, the owner of this belt will receive, receive much affliction, when he enters in to Jerusalem. So question, is this command to John a command to measure a literal structure or does it depict something much greater? Well, some believe that this was the temple that existed before 70 AD, which means the book of Revelation would have to been written before 70 AD because the Romans crushed it in 70 AD. There was nothing left to measure. That's the literalist preterist approach and that's an okay interpretation if indeed it was written before 70 AD. It could be, some believe, a temple that is to be rebuilt before Christ returns. And if that were the case, it would have no purpose whatsoever for the church that's receiving this letter if this was two or 3,000 years into the future. So, I don't believe it's any one of those. John's vision here, beloved, always, again, these visions take us back to the Old Testament. This vision here harkens back to the vision of Ezekiel in chapter 40 and following where he spoke of a great last day's temple where the very, don't miss this, the very glory of God would dwell. The very glory of God. Now, as we read Old Testament scripture, we must allow the New Testament to define the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies for us. As we read the apostles in the New Testament, they teach us the correct way to interpret the Old Testament, and that is by way of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said this himself. Jesus is walking after his resurrection in the road, down the road to Emmaus, because there's two disciples there who were beside themselves. You remember the story? What is all this that has taken place with this man called Jesus from Nazareth? All this hope we're supposed to have in him. Here he is crucified. There's some rumors that he's raised from the dead, but what is this? Jesus shows up. They don't recognize him. What is this that you're discussing among yourselves, he asks them. And they tell him. Jesus answers like this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the what? Scriptures, which would be the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. So as we study the writing of the apostles, we witness the theme of Old Testament imagery here finding their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see clearly that it's Jesus who's the true man to come down from heaven. He is the bread of life. Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is the true Jew. Who then is this temple? What is this temple? Well, let's let scripture define that for us this morning. Notice 1 Corinthians 3.16, the apostle Paul writes, and he says this, Do you not know that you, writing to the church of Corinth, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. (sighs) Amen is right, brother. You're the temple of God. In 2 Corinthians 6, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. So, beloved, that which defines the temple of God is the very presence of God. What defines the temple of God? The very presence of God. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 20. Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built up together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here we see organic language, beloved, mixed with architectural language. You have a cornerstone. You have a foundation fit together uh, with, with a structure. And this structure is growing. It's a growing structure. And each member, as you notice, fits together in the Lord. So by means of grace, beloved, we're built together into a dwelling place for God. That's why we're gathered here. To worship the one who indwells us. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 28, it reads, Behold, I am the one who's laid a foundation, as a foundation in Zion, a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste. We don't believe in haste. We're rooted in the truth, everlasting truth. When we get to the New Testament, listen to Peter, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen, Precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, i.e., a temple. Temple. Therefore, everyone who is attached to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, makes up the true temple of God. So, the ultimate temple prophesied about in the Old Testament was Jesus Christ and his redeemed people. Isn't that exciting? Now, this certainly doesn't mesh well with the theory that we as Christians in America should send our money to Israel in order for them to rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount in order to usher in the second coming of Christ. Okay? I don't say that to mock. I say that because that really happens. There's other places we can send money to further the kingdom. Missions, how about that? You can go mission, be a mission over there, that's great, but I wouldn't send money to rebuild some literal temple. We are the temple of God. So this, beloved, is not a command to measure a mere structure, but a a measurement of worshipers. It is a measurement of a people. So to rightly interpret the temple, we see that this is not a question of what or where the temple is, but rather who the temple is. It's the body of Christ. It's the people of God. They are, we are the temple. He dwells here in the believer. So the true temple is Jesus and those who are united to him by faith. So this tells us clearly that this is not an actual piece of real estate called Jerusalem. It's being referred to here, but this is the people of God. This is the bride of Christ, his true church. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. This is a city, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. We stand upon the chief cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus set the record straight When he commenced his public ministry, beloved, he entered into the time of Passover, into the temple, and what did his his disciples observe him doing? Jesus surveys the ground, he surveys the temple, he sees animals and, and money changers, and he sees a mockery being made of the house of the Lord, which is a place of prayer, so he goes and he makes for him a cord of whips and he chases out the money chasers and the animals along with them, and then he flips the place upside down. He points to the literal temple because the people, the Pharisees, said, What gives you the right to do this? As a matter of fact, what sign do you show us that authorizes you to do this? Jesus points to the literal temple and he said, This destroy this temple, for in three days I'll raise it up again. They said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to tear it down and raise it up in three days? Scripture says, But he was speaking about his body. And once he raised from the dead, then the disciples remembered the scripture says, and they believed the scripture, which was the Old Testament. And the word that Jesus had spoken. So, John's told to measure a temple, its altar, and its worshipers. And again, this draws from Old Testament imagery, beloved. Zechariah chapter 2. I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, Where are you going? <laughs> to measure Jerusalem, he said to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked to me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as village without, villages without walls because of the multitude of the people and livestock in it. And many, get this, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So you see, beloved, that vision captures the time when salvation will no longer be limited to the Jewish nation, but will extend by the grace of God in Christ Jesus alone to every tribe, tongue, and nation of people. The Gentile world, that's why you're saved, according to that promise, you see. And that day arrived with the, the inauguration of Christ's kingdom it is first advent so measuring this temple once again is to measure the people of God which shows us by the way that this is a fixed number this is a fixed number none that are part of this measurement can ever be lost you're in Christ you're part of this measurement you can never be lost Jesus said it himself my sheep they hear my what and what do they do in response they follow me you follow Christ because he spoke to you to save you, and you responded because he granted you the ability to do so. I give them what kind of life? Eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, no adversary can possibly take away from the measurement or the fullness of the measurement of God's people. It's impossible. The gates of Hades, Jesus said, will not prevail against my church. So that then, beloved, is the temple. The eternally secure church of Jesus Christ, that is you, and that, you see, is your sense of peace and security. You have peace with God through Christ. You're eternally secured, a measured people. But notice, there's an exclusion of measurement here in verse 2. But, do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Don't measure it. Now, some attempt to define this is where the Dome of the Rock stands today, quote unquote, it's been trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. No. How do we understand this from a biblical perspective? Well again, we must remember the part that's measured is the part that's protected. That's the temple of God, all those who are in Christ. The part outside the temple is referred to notice as the holy city. And that holy city is going to be trampled for 42 months. So what do we make what do we make of this command? Well, Revelation 21-2 is a hint. This is what it tells us. We see that the holy city Revelation 21 is not earthly Jerusalem. The holy city is referred to as the new Jerusalem who is, the scripture says, the bride of Christ. The holy city then? The bride of Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? His church. So what do we see here? We see again, dual imagery. We see two pictures of the same people The temple, Christ's people that are eternally secured. The outer court, the holy city being trampled by the nations. The same group of people who dwell on earth who suffer the persecution of Christ while they dwell here, while we live here. Now we've seen this a number of times. Back in chapter 5, the question was asked, Who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? And the voice cried out and said, The lion of the tribe of Judah. When John hears that it's a lion, when he turns to look, he doesn't see a lion, but he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. Dual imagery, same person, Jesus Christ. Again, the 144,000. He see, or he hears rather, a group that is sealed for eternity, 144,000 true Israelites gathered together as an array that looks like military ranks from Earth. When he looks, he sees an innumerable, innumerable amount of people from every tribe, tongue and nation in heaven. Two pictures, same people. And we see that kind of paradoxical language being conveyed throughout the book. So number one, what do we see? Christ's true church is forever secured and protected from what? From two things. God's divine wrath, which is hell. And number two, from ever falling away. You're in Christ, you'll never fall away. You'll never walk away. See, anyone who can walk away and say, yeah, I no longer believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, never was in the first place. They will not fall away. They'll never suffer the wrath of God. And secondly, while at the same time, they are susceptible to receiving the aggressive abuse of those who dwell upon the earth, unbelievers. Dual imagery. So there then, The church of Jesus Christ, in a sense, is both indestructible and vulnerable. You're an indestructible people, eternally speaking, but you're very vulnerable to attack as you carry the cross of Jesus Christ. You're mocked at work. You're vulnerable. Your neighbors mock you. Your family laugh at you at Thanksgiving because you're the only Christian in the room. Freako. Freako. You know, it's funny, I've been called a freak many times, but it's funny, never to my face. There's a lot of things I've been called, unfortunately, never to my face, rarely. I'm ready to take a beating for the Lord Jesus Christ, physically, if anyone has the the guts to do that, not here, but out there. (laughs) Don't let me hear your nonsense from someone else. Come up on me. (laughs) People ask me, what would I do if I ever somebody started throwing blows at me for the gospel? I'd say I'd just double up and take it. Now, if they were going to attack you physically, it's fist to cuffs all the way. (laughs) The apostles were stoned and they went away rejoicing, finding themselves, I've been found worthy to suffer for the namesake of Jesus Christ. That would be an honor for preaching the gospel. But don't hurt my family. So, We we dwell as Christians in in an eternally secure position while at the same time very vulnerable uh, to persecution, exposed to our enemies in an earthly temporal sense. Such is the experience of the Christian life, beloved, amen? It's like a pendulum. We swing back and forth. One day as a believer, you're on the mountaintop, you stand there victoriously and you think, man, I am by God's grace more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And two days later, man, am I even in the faith? You ever feel like that? You feel like you're tottering. The temptation and trials that you bear seem beyond what you're able to handle. That's where you must be reminded of your eternal security, your position in Jesus Christ. Because trials and temptations are all part of it in this world. Because there is a world that goes on. There is a war that goes on that is not made up of flesh and blood. It's spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's why we're instructed to put on the whole armor of God. How often? Every day. You will suffer. So we totter back and forth, but we must realize that we must remember when we feel vulnerable, when we are being attacked, when we are being tried, when we are falling down and getting scraped up and getting beat up, you get up because when a righteous man falls down seven times, that man gets up again by the grace of God. Because he can. Because of the one who suffered in our place. So yes, you will suffer, but you must know at the same time, because of the temple that's been measured and secured, it cannot result in your undoing. Eternally speaking, you get it? It cannot undo what Christ has established for you. I mean, in the context of persecution, trials, and troubles... Distress, Paul writes these words, and this was our opening reading this morning from Romans chapter eight. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Question? What, shall tribulation? No, distress? No, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's the conquering hero, not you, not me. So, our conquering status in Christ doesn't guarantee that we'll, es- we'll escape suffering at this court. That the nations have been granted the ability to persecute the holy city, the people of God. But why? How? Because Jesus Christ suffered, because Jesus Christ died in our stead, suffering the curse, rising victoriously, and that's the paradox of his life. Victory came by way of what? Suffering. He secured our eternal condition, our eternal state, by way of laying his life down, being spit upon and mocked by the people he spoke into existence? Hebrews 2.14, that through death, he, Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So, So through his death on our behalf, we experience ultimate victory, ultimate, eternal victory, mixed with earthly turmoil. Remember John was given that scroll to eat? When he ate it, how did it taste? Sweet as honey. When it ended up in his stomach, all symbolic of course, It was bitter. The gospel is bitter sweet. Notice back in chapter 10. Look at verse 11. This is interesting. This ties right into what we're talking about. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, which is to say... You are to preach against, remember that preposition we looked at last week? You are to preach against many people's nations, languages, and kings. So the court outside the temple, which is not to be measured, is the place that is permitted by God that the enemies of God, the nations, are able to trample the holy city the holy city being the lamb of God, the lamb of God being the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ being the church. So this is a picture of how the nations will mistreat God's true people. Revelation 21.9 says that the holy city, Jerusalem, is called, again, the lamb's wife. The lamb's wife. So contrary to pop Christianity, as you see on TV, God does not assure his people deliverance from trial, trouble, or tribulation for his namesake. He does not. He said, in this world, you will suffer tribulation for my namesake. You will. So we're not not exempt, beloved, from pain. We're not exempt from problems for persecution. But the next question is, how long do we endure this? Well, the scripture says for 42 months. Next question. What does 42 months represent? Well, uh, on the surface here, we know that it's the time allowed for the nations to rage against God's people, 42 months. How do we interpret this amount of time? Like every other number in the Revelation, symbolically. Now, beloved, as you read the Revelation, when you read 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, time, times, and half time, those are all synonymous terms for the same amount of time. Okay, 1,260 days is three and a half years, is 42 months, is time times and half a time. Now to a Jew, that amount of time in those synonymous terms was the imagery that was seared into their minds from history past. About 170 years before Christ, Antiochus Epiphany, Antiochus Epiphanes directed all of his evil energies against the Jewish people and their religion. He wanted to exterminate them. Observation of the Sabbath, forbidden. Circumcision of the oldest male children, forbidden. Worship rituals, abolished. Anyone found with the book of law, anyone caught circumcising their son, they'd be put to death. And then finally, at the great great altar of burnt offering, Antiochus Epiphany lays down a sacrifice dedicating the temple of Jerusalem to Zeus, known as the abomination of desolation described by Daniel. But then in 167 BC, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers stand up in a revolt commences and it lasts three and a half years three and a half years which was a period of great trouble and always was related to a great time of trouble hereafter so this became a defining moment for Jews in this day and then in response to that victory Jews celebrate it to this very day that's what Hanukkah is So those synonymous terms of time always again relate to a period of great trouble. A time of trouble that won't endure forever. A time of trouble that will be cut short to its ultimate end. Number seven represents fullness or completeness. Three and a half is trouble that falls short of its ultimate fulfillment. So it represents a time of trouble, a time to be endured. So these synonymous terms, they're not unlike what we have in recent history as Americans. When you hear 9-11, when you hear September 11th, when you hear Twin Towers, when you hear Ground Zero, those are synonymous terms for us. It was a time of trouble. It was a short time. But it was a time of trouble. So then this outer court, beloved, represents the trouble that Christ's witnesses will face for a limited time. And the 42 months then represents a time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, the trouble will end and it will end at the seventh trumpet. Are you with me, eh? beloved? Okay, quickly we're we're going to get into this more next week but that leads into okay who are the two witnesses then Now I want you to remember something before we look at the two witnesses briefly Remember the trumpet blast thus far Remember the seals that are torn open and the four horsemen are released And Jesus said you'll have wars and you'll have rumors of wars and you'll have pestilence and you'll have famine on this land, on this world, and these are only the beginning of troubles. There'll be earthquakes and all that type of thing. Those are temporal judgments of God from Jesus Christ on an unbelieving world. For the hope of what? That men will repent of their evil. Remember what Jesus said about the tire of Siloam that fell? And the, the, the people asked him about the Galileans also that were murdered when they brought their sacrifice to the altar and Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifice. Jesus gets right to the point. He said, do you think those Galileans were any worse Gal- than any other Galilean? Most assuredly, I say to you, no, but unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Jesus went on to say, what about the Tower of Siloam? I mean, this is a construction accident that fell and killed 18. Do you think they were any more wicked sinners than anyone else? No, I'm telling you, Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll also likewise perish. So here's these temporal judgments from Christ to this earth. You would think people would repent, but after the sixth trumpet blast, Revelation 9 tells us something different. Verse 20. Those who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So we see here that God speaks through way of providential judgments upon the earth. The world doesn't repent, but he also has another tool that he uses. You know what it is? It's you. The witnesses of Jesus Christ. The witnesses of Jesus Christ are the church of Jesus Christ. And only after her witness is complete will this seventh trumpet sound, beloved. We're going to see next week the two witnesses is the church, empowered by and filled with the Holy Spirit, and these witnesses go out with the power of Elijah and Moses, who represent the law and the prophets. What did Jesus say? He sent out his disciples, what? Two by two, two by two, two by two, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's the church. And we'll study these, as I said, next time in more detail. And then after that, we'll follow final judgment, the seventh trumpet. And then when we get into the next chapter, we see the birth of Jesus, again showing us that the revelation is not chronological. It's made up of numerous pictures. So here we see again, beloved, that life devoted to making much of Jesus Christ as followers of Christ is costly. It's costly. Living life on the road to Calvary is filled with paradoxes. This was Paul's life. How did Paul live? You know how he lived? As sorrowful, yet always what? What? Rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing what? Everything, you have everything in Christ. But because of him, you'll suffer. One commentator puts it like this. He said, as believers, we we live, quote, a mixed situation and unstable amalgam of deadly danger and divine defense. Amalgam, mixture of deadly danger and divine defense. That's the title of the message. It's where I ripped it off from. (laughs) So the deadly danger is the outer court given over to the nations, unbelievers, to persecute God's people who will suffer in this world not unlike our Savior. Not unlike our Savior. But the divine defense is is the temple of God measured and secured forever. This is Christ and his bride forever kept secure. You'll never even fall away. You can't fall away because he purchased you. You wouldn't want to run away. If, you, if we trample alongside a little bit, he'll come and spank you right back in the line because he loves those he chastens, his children. So to bear the cross of Jesus Christ in this life is to experience the potential of deadly danger danger while resting assured in his divine defense. Remind yourself of his divine defense as you face danger. So such is the life for the here and now, such is the life for those who surrender and sacrifice earthly blessings for heavenly ones. It's only when the church becomes indistinguishable from the world that it doesn't suffer this kind of persecution. When the church is indistinguishable from the world, it doesn't suffer trial and temptation. Calvin writes this as I close up. In a comment on 1 Peter, John Calvin writes this, and Peter wrote to encourage a very persecuted church at this time. He said this, quote, The church of Christ has been from the beginning so constituted that the cross has been the way to victory and death a passage to life. So, this temporal suffering unleashed by the devil, he makes war on God's people, he conquers and kills them, verse 7, cannot undo or abolish the eternal joy that we have in Christ dwelling in his kingdom, which has already been established. You're his people, bought at a great price. So whatever you may be facing as a follower of Christ, beloved, in order to keep you from sinking into the river of despair or despondency, misery or hopelessness, we must remind ourselves of these words, the words of the Apostle Paul, part of our opening reading this morning. Listen to these as I close. Romans eight eighteen that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. In who? In us. Notice suffering. Suffering in this present age cannot be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. That glory, beloved, is his glory. And you will receive that glory because he suffered in your stead eternally. So because of that glory and that suffering, we too will receive that glory, but we will also suffer. What a paradox. That's the message of this chapter. So again, that quote from Bonhoeffer, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When God calls a man, he calls him, he bids him come and die, amen? Father, we thank you for the passage that has been established through our Lord and our Redeemer that you walked the Calvary road, you paved the Calvary road, you established the Calvary road and yet call us to walk the Calvary road But Lord, we can't do that in our own strength. We need grace for that as well. So God, I pray that you'll grant each one of us in this room the grace to be reminded of the kingdom that's been established, of the temple that's eternal, that we are part of that temple, but nevertheless, we dwell in this outside court that's been handed over for a time to an unbelieving world to trample upon the holy city, the bride of Christ. So may we remind ourselves within this great paradox of our eternal security in Christ as we suffer the persecution and the onslaught of those who hate you. But in the process, we ask, by your grace, that you would use us as instruments and messengers of the gospel to bear witness of you in the midst of it all. And that you'll prepare hearts as well for everybody in this room that when they do share the hope that lies within them, that they will see a great harvest within the souls of those people that surround them. So use us, we ask, Lord, as bearers of the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, your lamb, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.